Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Dave Barr from Pender Capital Management. We're going to be talking about value. We're going to be talking about growth. We're going to be talking technology and small cap. It's a fascinating conversation and it's coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Dave, uh, we've known each other for a little while. You run three funds at Pender. Can you just give us an overview of what those three funds are? Yeah, there's three mandates. So Pender Value Fund, which is our go anywhere uh, opportunistic fund. There's no cap market cap restrictions, uh, no geographical restrictions. So really allows me to to draw draw in ideas and names from from the entire Pender investment team. Um, the 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 fund I've been running since we went into the traditional asset management business in 09 is the Small Cap Opportunities Fund. And I mean, I, at my core, I mean, I, I get up jumping out of bed every day looking for great micro cap and small cap opportunities. So um, that fund is very much focused on Canadian small micro cap, um, but we do venture into the US and a bit international, uh, about 20% uh, non-Canadian exposure in that mandate. And then uh, Pender Growth Fund is actually the, the fund that started the whole thing at Pender. It was originally a venture fund, and we've we've transitioned it a couple times. It's now a publicly traded company, uh, PTF, on the TSX Venture Exchange, and it allows us to take deep liquidity uh, opportunities. We it's a holding company. We don't have to worry about shareholders redeeming at the worst possible time. They can sell in the market, so it allows us to do, you know, some of the most interesting things we're able to um, right across our investment team. It's a holding company that holds only other public companies or does it hold private stuff as well? Uh, it holds both. So, I mean, we kind of target a 40, 60, 60, 40 mix. Um, when we look at privates, it's more later stage kind of inflection stage technology businesses um, or things where we buy and control outright. I mean, there's, there's one medical software uh, evaluation company in there, 145. I mean, I think we we bought that out of a larger pubco back in 2011. Um, you know, back in the good old days when you could buy a recurring revenue software business for 0.5 times revenue, um, and it's subsequently grown its revenue 4x over that period of time. So, um, doing control investments like that, but and then on the public side, uh, being opportunistic, but also really employing our private equity approach and. I think when we talk about Pender Growth Fund being the fund that started it all, I, I started in private equity and it, it really builds the foundation for our investment process. And, uh, you know, we're, we're business analysts. We're trying to figure out what these businesses are worth. We're trying to figure out what they're worth to a third party. Um, we want to know the quality of it uh, and how much that business can grow. And, you know, and when, so when we're looking at these companies on the public side, um, not only are we trying to buy them at a cheap price, but we're trying to figure out what are the internal economics of that business going to grow at. And then, you know, the nice uh, kind of added bonus with, with Pender Growth Fund is we can we we can we can help the company. We can get we could take larger positions, 
I mean, there's one company we own over 50% of, another company we own 35% of, um, and we can really provide the stability that management needs to execute on their business plan and bring other people to the table that can help the management team accelerate that too. Let's just talk about quality a little bit, because I think that that's a, um, it's a very broad term. How do you define quality? What are you looking for? Uh, quality is a highly subjective term. Felix and I, Felix is our CIO. We have great debates over this all the time. The, you know, for us, it's, you know, what, what is the sustainability of the, of the firm's cash flows and can they increase those cash flows over time? And it, I mean, where we're looking in the cap spectrum, it's, it, it has an impact, you know, when we're looking more into the mid and large cap space, um, it's really important to understand what the return on invested capital is and how big that runway is. I mean, that's that's really the core of a high quality business. Can they reinvest company reinvest their internal capital at a way higher rate than their than their cost of capital? Um, in in the earlier stage, I mean, a lot of times we're investing in companies that aren't profitable yet. So, you know, you ask yourself how how the heck do you actually figure out what the return on invested capital is and I mean, when people can't figure that out, I mean, that's when I just see opportunities aplenty. Um, so, but what, so when we focus down in, in the in the in the earlier stages of companies, it's really looking for product market fit, uh, market validation. Um, you know, not, nothing tells us that a a product or a service a service uh, solves an unmet need or solves a big problem than customers buying a whole bunch of it. I mean, cu customers buy things because they, not necessarily because they want to, but because they need to. And so when you see this, when you see revenue traction, um, and then the, you know, the, the fun part of our job is, you know, trying to figure out what the incremental margins could potentially be. And I think, you know, we've had this debate about Amazon going for 25 years. I think people finally, you know, everyone's capitulated and they think it's a good company now. Um, but, you know, there were periods of time where everyone just thought, you know, this company's worth nothing because it generates no free cash flow. Um, so when you can peel back the onion a little bit and try and figure out where, where these companies are actually generating incremental free cash flow, because when they get to scale, then you're going to see the power of the business model. And, you know, particularly when you're in the, the small and micro cap space, you, you buy these things at a, you know, they might be going out of business multiple. And then when they prove out that either, you know, they're growing at a nice clip and be the internal economics are sticking to the ribs of shareholders. Uh, then we start to see a lot of multiple re-rates and, and, and reversion to the mean. Let's just talk a little bit about Amazon as an example. How did you sort of decide that Amazon was a good business, even though it seemed to have that problem that it wasn't generating a great deal of free cash flow? Or it wasn't even falling to the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, we we came close to buying Amazon. Um, I think it was in 2013, um, but I there was there were a couple of quarters where you could see they took the they took the foot off the spend pedal a little bit, and every now and again they would kind of surprise with a you know all of a sudden cash flow bumped up a little bit more than we thought, and and then they would just I think they were just kind of trying to prove to the street that hey you know this we could make this profitable if we really wanted to, um, but you know you you've got a CEO there who, you know, he clearly didn't want to launch just a bookstore. He wanted pretty much world domination. So as long as there were high reinvestment opportunities, they were going to be reinvesting every single last penny in, in achieving world dominance. And I mean, gosh, they're, are they there yet? They're getting pretty close. <laughs> I think they've done it. 
Well, that's it gives us a, it's an interesting segue. What's given that you invest across Canada and the US, what's your experience looking at how, how do you find the two places differ? Um, I mean, Canada is a lot more conservative, I find, which is interesting given we have this really healthy, like junior capital markets. I mean, much like yourself in from coming from Australia, Toby, like. I mean, we, we have like moose pasture getting finance people like you, you want, you want 5 million bucks, tell people there's gold in your moose pasture. Right. Like, but you know, when you, when you look at the more mature markets in Canada and, and the, the, the end investors, it's, it is a very conservative space. Um, but then we have this like bifurcation where we have this very healthy kind of public venture market, which encourages risk-taking and capital formation in smaller companies. And, you know, that's, that's wonderful me, for me being a small cap investor, because we have, we have a whole bunch of small cap companies, a lot of a really fertile opportunity set for us to look at. Um, and, you know, structurally, uh, it's, there's a lot less overhead um, corporate expense associated with being public in Canada compared to the US. I mean, uh, a thrifty Canadian pub co can be public for a hundred to five hundred thousand dollars a year. Pretty sure you can't get out of bed in the U.S. for under two million a year as a pub co. So, if you're a hundred million dollar company, um, two million bucks a year is two percent of your two <laughs> percent of your revenue. I mean, that's I'd way rather have that in my jeans than have that going out to the lawyers and all the compliance people um, associated with being a public company. So, there's some structural advantages to being public early in Canada. But when the flip side is when I talk about uh, people being more risk averse, um, when we get into larger companies, we, we tend to see a valuation gap between Canadian comp public companies and U.S. public companies. And what that ends up doing is it ends up providing a rich opportunity set for U.S. companies to buy Canadian companies. And I mean, we just we see this all the time. A U.S. company can come in and buy a Canadian company at you know, a similar multiple to what they're trading in the US markets, but it's a 30 to 40% premium to, to where the Canadian company's trading at. Um, so, you know, when you, any, any shareholder who has a dollar and you offer them a dollar 30, um, they're, they're, they're grabbing that dollar 30 out of your hand as, as quickly as they can and norm, normally. Um, let's go back to the start. How did you get your start as an investor? Uh, I had the fortune of starting as a venture capitalist in early 2000. So, you know, basically, you know, I, I, I moved back to Vancouver after going to business school, caught on with a small venture firm. Uh, you ring the bell on, bell on the NASDAQ and, and then I just get punched in the face for three years. So that was, that was the start of my career. Um, you know, when you're going through it, uh, it feels like the worst experience ever. Now, looking back on it, uh, you know, it, it really helped to, to fine tune a lot of my investment process where, you know, we had, we had this portfolio of technology businesses and, you know, as soon as we recognized there was no capital available, um, we had to go in and triage and say, okay, what companies are going to survive and which are going to die. And what was interesting is that companies with revenue and positive free cash flow tended to survive. And those with no revenue and spending a lot of money tended to go away. So, you know, when you, when you, when you're, for me, looking around the investment universe, say that was, that was highly influential in, in the way I look at investing today um, and how I got my start. And, 
it uh, that I just spent a whole bunch of time analyzing businesses for about a decade uh, working in the venture private equity space, which, um, you know, is just, I love tearing apart businesses and looking at them all day. So it was, you know, it was, uh, I was probably resonating with a bunch of 20 and 30 year old analysts right now who want to be like PMs and CEOs of firms. And, you know, the best days are when you get to spend 14 hours a day doing nothing but looking at stocks when you're in your 20s and 30s. So enjoy it, everybody. And uh, when did you join Penda? Uh, I joined in 03. Uh, the fund I started with in 2000, um, it kind of rode the, the market downturn um, along with the rest of the tech sector. And uh, my two current partners uh, bought the management contract. And, you know, they, as they like to say, we need a short little red haired guy who would do all the work. And well, that was me, right? Um, so I, I, I caught on in 2003 and uh, we built that business. We were re re really active in the venture space for until about 2007. And I was getting ready to, to, to leave and start a small cap hedge fund because what I saw between kind of 2003 to 2007, eight was there was a big valuation disconnect between technology companies in the private markets and technology companies in the public markets. So, you know, I could, I could finance some, or in the, on, the, in the private side, you could finance some guy's big dream who thought he was worth a billion dollars because he thought he was smarter than Mark Zuckerberg, right? And you could, you know, a billion dollar valuation for an idea, or you could go into the public markets and, you know, there's a couple of companies out there I can, you know, we did, did great on where, you know, you were looking at businesses, one company was doing 5 million of revenue, uh, was doubling, doubling its revenue year over year. So uh, going, moving from five to 10 million of revenue, uh, hit the inflection point of being cash flow positive. Uh, and I think it had 10 million bucks of cash in the bank and it was trading at a $10 million market cap. So, I mean, you're buying it for the cash on the balance sheet. It was, it was just turned profitable and it was growing at hundred percent year over year. And you see things like that. And I, I mean, we, we joke like we like to do hard things at Pender. I mean, we much prefer doing easy things. And when you can buy something for the cash on the balance sheet and you get the business for free, that's on the easier pile. Um, and we just saw way more opportunities in the public markets than we saw in the, uh, in the private markets. So I, th I think that your, your investment style then is you're looking for free cash or at least a pathway to it. And you, you like the technology uh, type businesses that are, that are not quite at that, not quite at scale, but have you can a pretty clear path to getting to scale. Is that a fair um, characterization of your philosophy? Yeah, yeah, I would expand it. I mean, we're ideally looking for capital light business models. So, you know, technology is just a plenty with them, as are like healthcare, consumer products, uh, specialty finance firms. Um, and where we see, I mean, we, we, we talk about it when, with, uh, with respect to like Thomas Phelps and his book, 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. I mean, you need two, you need two things to generate great long-term returns. I mean, actually, you can do it with just writing the business fundamentals, but if you can also get the multiple re-rate and the multiple expansion in a, in a company, you're, you're teeing yourself up for, to double dip on, you know, take advantage of the market and the economics of the business. And so for us, what we find is there's, there's a period of time where before, before it's really apparent what the true underlining earning power of the business is, um, where you can buy a company at a multiple that's at a discount to what it would be trading at 
once it does actually demonstrate that earning power. So getting in there early. And, you know, that's, that's the core of a lot of our small cap uh, investment work, because it's hard to figure that out. And, you know, sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. It's not without risk. Um, but the rewards are, the rewards are, 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 are wonderful when you get it right. And, but it's, it is challenging and it really drives in on the fact, I mean, I've been, I've been looking at growing technology businesses for over 20 years and you know, on our investment team, we've got a private markets team focused strictly on private tech companies. We've got, you know, over 12 people on the, on the public market side. Um, and, you know, when, when you understand these businesses at a deep level, you can, and when you're having conversations about the company, um, you can you can start to fine tune and figure out if the business really is scalable at the end of the day um, or if it's not. And it's, I mean, one of the things, one of the things you really have to look out for in the technology space. And we, we see, we see this in Canada right now. I mean, we've obviously we've had a, we've had a hot IPO market right across the board. And I mean, the worst thing about a technology company is when it's growing really quickly and you know, everyone says, Oh yeah, you know, they're reinvesting for growth. But the reality is a lot of times they're they're reinvesting just to make their existing customers happy. So it's not actually growth. It's just maintenance spend. And businesses like that tend to be job shops and they could be nice little businesses, but you know, you're not going to see, you know, the software revenues that everybody salivates when they look at Facebook and Google and all these big guys at the end of the day. Um, you might see some normalized real business multiples kind of in that two to two to it's the you know, high single digits type operating margins because those are more competitive businesses, heavy investment in people, and the profitability probably just isn't going to be there at the end of the day. So it's really, in the early stages, it can be really hard to figure out if that technology truly is scalable or if it's a job shop. Um, so we try and tune in on that. How do you take the uh, approach that you have, which, which seems very suitable for small cap growth tech, and apply that in a larger cap value uh, universe. Yeah, the so when you look at this, how you can actually have a, an advantage and generate alpha in the markets. I mean, we we talk about there's there's three ways you can do it. You can you can have an analytical edge, and we lean on that heavily in the small cap markets because small cap markets are are incredibly inefficient. Um, the second is is your behavioral approach and. Uh, I mean, that's, that's really having a contrarian mindset. And, you know, when, so when we get into large cap companies, I mean, our opinion of Stitch Fix is, is, is you know, there's, there's at least 100 other people out there who have similar opinions, probably have done deeper work um, than we have, um, but that's okay. I mean, what, what that, our approach is, you know, understand the business at a deep level and the potential earnings power and then just be opportunistic when the market gives you the opportunity. And so, I mean, that was, I mean, Stitch Fix, we, my Felix partner or partner Felix, he talked about it. Uh, he posted uh, his thesis on it at a conference uh, last summer. Um, and, you know, I think the stock was probably, you know, in the 30, $20, $30 range at that point in time and ran up to a hundred dollars. And so, I mean, we were, we obviously, we, we sold a whole bunch of stock when it was a hundred dollars. And then, you know, all of a sudden everyone said, well, it's not worth a hundred dollars. It's worth, it's worth way less. And then, you know, so it came back down. It was in the thirties and, and we reloaded on our position. And, you know, do we have any unique insight on the business? Um, I mean, Stitch Fix is a bit of a battleground stock. So um, there's a lot of people who will disagree with us. 
The great part is in these battleground stocks, though, is you got strong opinions on both sides, which leads to massive overpricing and massive underpricing. And we just have our opinion on what we think the, the, the business is worth, what the quality is, and we take advantage of what the market does on any given day. So I guess that leads me to the next question, which is when you're looking for these opportunities, how do you go about finding them? Are you screening or what's your process? It, uh, I mean, our favorite ideas are recycled ideas. And because when you're, when you're being, when you're trying to understand a business, you, you don't figure it out overnight. It, it, it really is a bunch of accumulated knowledge and, and understanding the deep workings of the business. And so for us, you know, a lot of the ideas, I, people will ask, well, where'd you come up with that idea? I'm like, I don't know. I've just been following it so long. I, I, I don't even know who, like where it came from. Um, but I mean, that we're, we are seeing uh, a moment in time right now where the, the go public market is, is pretty frothy. So there's a lot of stuff coming to market right now. And, you know, for us, this is a great opportunity to get to know these companies. Um, I mean, there was a period of time last year where there was, you know, private market value was at a, you know, a discount to what we would see in the public markets. So there was an opportunity to take advantage of that arbitrage. Um, private markets, you know, th th they're smart people too, and they figured it out. So they're now demanding higher prices on the IPO, which then, you know, you, you don't have that, uh, that bump out of the gate. Um, and some are even, you know, able to price at a premium to what the business is probably worth. So, but for us right now, it's, it's about doing the work and getting to understand these businesses um, and consistently meeting with the management team because, I mean, our, our ideal investment is a high quality business that we can buy and hold for a really long period of time. I mean, I, I sound like a million other people out there. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? So I, I, I recognize that, how, how that sounds. But, you know, it's the, in order to actually find those companies, you, you need to be following them for a long time when you really get to understand, you know, what, how, how the business is, is operating, what management's doing. Um, and I, in the small cap space, you know, there's, there's less information available. So for us, it's, it's a lot of times it's meeting with these management teams and, and building a track record on, you know, how they're doing strategically. Cause they'll, you know, they come in and they talk about where, where they want to take the company in three to five years. And, you know, we take a whole bunch of notes and then three to five years later, we look at our notes and it's like, wow, like here, here's a CEO who's just done everything he said he's going to do and more. And then, you know, on the flip side, you know, I talk about the, the moose pasture financings up here in Canada. We hear a, a whole bunch of people who are going to, you know, build billion dollar companies in a year. And, you know, every now and again, they do. <laughs> every now and again. So when you're, when you're constructing a portfolio, how do you think about diversification, uh, concentration across industries? Or what, to what extent does that enter into the consideration? Yeah. So when we're, when I'm building out a portfolio, it's the, the most important aspect of it is capital preservation. And so that ties into what's the maximum exposure we want uh, with respect to business risk. So, you know, if I look at a company, I mean, we'll, we'll go into some pretty interesting situations where, yeah, there might be an over levered balance sheet and we see, we see a pathway for that company to delever and I mean, I, I know you've had Dan Rasmussen on the, on, on the pod and you know, he does a great job identifying these kind of these public LBOs effectively, right? Where you've got, you know, 800 million of debt and hundred million of equity value. 
and as you pay down that debt, the the debt value transfer goes from the debt holders to the equity holders. And you know, you can make a four or five X in a relatively short period of time in these things. Um, the flip side is it can go to zero. Um, you know, you do your work to make sure they don't, but it can. So if we see a risk exposure like that, our max weighting will be 2% um, because we just we try and keep the catastrophic risk at the business level out of out of the portfolio. The the second way we look at risk is uh, at on the uh, on the end customer side, and so for us, that's you know I, when we see downturns, they generally tend to be industry wide. So we've seen this big downturn in the oil and gas industry. You know, if we had a hundred percent of our portfolio invested in companies that were selling software to the oil and gas industry, um, we'd be looking like fools right now. Um, so it's really managing our 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 industry exposure at the, where the revenue, like where the spend actually is occurring, because that's where the industry cycles actually come more into play. And uh, what about uh, rebalancing, trimming and uh, adding? Do you, do you do that or do you just let the positions run? Uh, so I, I tend to be pretty active. Um, I mean, I, historically we've been about 25% turnover in the portfolio. I, I, I imagine there's there might be some people listening who think 25% is highly active. Like that, that's crazy, um, but for me it is. And I but last year last year was clearly a really high turnover year given the market conditions and what happened. I think you know when you when you when you understand what a business is worth to a third party, it really gives you a lot of conviction to when the business. You know, when Mr. Market says the business is worth less today than it was yesterday, that gives you an opportunity to add a bit more to your position. And similarly, when Mr. Market says the, the business is, you know, is, is worth way more than it was yesterday, you can take a little bit off the table. Um, so we, you know, we, we do trade around it. I mean, our, my core position size is, you know, between two and 6%. Um, so what we would look at is, the two aspects that would come into it are, you know, is it a high quality business? So is it a compounder to throw another overused term out there right now? Or is it a lower quality business and what we call a close the discount situation, which is kind of that more traditional Ben Graham type value investing. And we're way more active on our close the discount names um, because I mean, gosh, we've, you know, we've, we've all bought something because we saw great asset coverage on the balance sheet and, you know, as a dollar of assets, stocks trading at 20 cents. And then you think you're a hero because the stock goes to 80 cents and you forget to sell. And then you're back at 20 cents and you're kicking yourself. Like there's no easier way to round trip than in a, a low quality close of discount situation. So as those types of companies get closer to fair value, we actively manage our, our position sizing. The on, on compounders, that's where we're you know happier to let them run. Um, as long as, you know, they're, in the range of fair value. And it's what, what, what's really challenging is actually, like a lot of these great companies, we continually underestimate the business momentum. And we continually underestimate the great things management did two, three, four, or five years ago, which are starting to pay dividends today, which is that, that next lever of growth, which you know, isn't readily apparent if you're analyzing, if, if, if you're backwards looking. So I think you, you, you actually have to give management a little bit of a, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt when they've got that history of doing really smart things. And I mean, uh, you know, 
Amazon, I think, is a is an example of that where you know you look at AWS and nobody really knew what was going on inside of AWS. And I mean, look at it today, right? I and that was that was never part of the value equation of anybody looking at Amazon. Well, probably a couple of people who are deep in tech, but not a lot of people in the early 2000s. Um, so it's these, these low cost bullets and these things the management team are doing on a continual basis that can add value, which, and a, so when you're looking at fair value, I mean, however you do it, is it private market value? Is it DCF? Um, you know, it's, it, it, you're never going to be perfectly correct. I mean, your assumptions are always wrong. It's just a question of how much they're wrong. And it's, it's just, it's really easy. And I find particularly for value focused investors, I, I just find a lot of us tend to underestimate our bull scenarios. And so if you're doing a probability weighted analysis of a bull base and uh, bear case scenario, if your bull case is underrepresented or understated, you just, you're, you're wrong out of the gate and you're going to sell, you're just going to keep on trimming your flowers. And that's uh if you've trimmed your flowers too much in the last two years, um, you just, you're, you're on Twitter suffering right now. <laughs> it's been a, um, it's been probably an unusual decade in the sense that it seems that we have had exactly that experience where a lot of these companies have been much, much better than we appreciated. And so have traded at uh, very wide discounts to probably where they should have been trading. Um, how do you, when you look at the opportunity set now, how do you feel about that opportunity set? Does that continue to be the case? Do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I, I always struggle to make the broad-based statements um, because there's, there's absolutely technology companies which are crazy overvalued right now. Um, there's other companies which are probably misunderstood and undervalued today. Um, I think, you know, we, I, I, you know, I would be on a general level. I mean, we certainly have to be more cautious today um, than we were a year ago um, or that we were in two, 2015 or 2016. Um, because there's just, there's more people who are kind of around the space, understand it, valuations are higher. Um, so there's just more risk right across the board. Um, but there's, there's always things to be doing out there. Um, and I think we, we always talk about, you know, there's, there's time where the, you know, there's, there's time where it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, there's other times where you go hunting for a needle in the haystack. I mean, I don't think we're full needle in a haystack right now, but we're, we're certainly closer to that than, than grabbing fish out of a barrel. Let me ask it in a different way then. How, uh, which, which of the funds do you find it easiest to find opportunities for right now? Oh, you're really trying to pin me down, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the value fund, because we're able to go larger cap and we tend to have larger weightings. I mean, it's, we're, we're, we're very happy with where we are right there. I mean, we've, we've seen some spin out opportunities recently. Um, it's just, I, I, I there, there's just, when you're running concentrated portfolios, I mean, 20 names is 80% of our invested portfolio. I mean, we only need 20 good ideas and they need to be high conviction. And right now we're having, you know, we've got 20 high conviction names right across the board. Dave, I've never asked a follow-up question in my life. So I'm glad that made you feel like you're being <laughs> cross-examined or something like that. <laughs> oh, your, your legal background's coming in there, Toby. 
I totally yeah. ducked the question though, and I like I like you trying to trying to pin me on it. Dave, let's discuss a few of the holdings that you currently have in your portfolio. So these are these are micro cap, small. Uh, so folks uh, who are playing along at home understand what we're talking about here. Um, let's discuss Pronto Forms first. What's the uh, thesis there? Yeah, so Pronto Forms a uh, nice little software company out of Ottawa, and they help automate field service workers. So if you think of you know, you're the, the gas meter reader who shows up at the, your house and, you know, either writes things down on a piece of paper or bangs it into an Excel spreadsheet. Um, what Pronto Forms allows, allows the, the gas company to, you know, build a really simple app that all of their field workers can use, uh, input the data, um, goes back to head office in real time, done. So it really, it actually, it improves the workflow process for that gas meter reader. Um, actually, it's, you know, it's in a, in a COVID world, it actually, you know, speeds up their job, makes their, their role a lot safer in the world. And what's great is, you know, it's, it's, it's a low code tool. So you don't need a big software development team at the gas company to build this app out to, to, to support your field service workers. Um, basically a business analyst can build it. I mean, we use a similar tool at Pender for our trading, um, our my trader built you know built this app one day and I was, we're all we're all using it so it's these little code tools are are really interesting. It's automating field service workers is you know early stages of a really big market. Um, I, people always you know they go after the really high value problem or high, like the the Billy the really big problems first. Automating field service workers is has has historically been a bit of an afterthought. Um, and but Pronto Forms is one of the early workers or early uh, uh, software companies in the space. I think there's, there's them and another group, which are kind of one, two in terms of market share. And um, we think this has a long runway. And I think kind of to our earlier conversation about figuring out software companies that are heavily investing for growth. I mean, they, they had a bit of a pause last year, but this is a company historically grew at over 30% top line and just reinvested every dollar in accelerating and supporting that growth. And, you know, we kind of look at, you know, what they're doing and where, where can their normalized margins be at the end of the day? Um, well, a lot higher than, a lot higher than they are today. When you, look, you think, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going, please. Yeah. When you, uh, no, go ahead. I was just going to ask, when you look at something like Pronto Forms, how do you get comfortable with the competitive advantage there? Because that it seems to me that's, is there some network effect in something like that, that folks get comfortable with constructing the forms for their workers? Or how do, how do you get comfortable there? Yeah, it's, I mean, what, what they're doing isn't rocket science. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's not a technological advantage. It's it's a lot of kind of the, the industry know-how and, and use cases, which is built into the flexibility of their platform. I mean, the CEO has came from field services automation in the 90s. I mean, he's been in this field his entire life. So he understands the issues. So having that deep customer experience really helps him in how the company has built out their product over time. And then I think in the... You know, when you when you're looking at uh, you know in the early innings of these tech in this uh, in these in these markets, you know you'll you'll see a whole bunch of uh, participants. You see a bunch of companies going after market share, and so I mean a couple we'll 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 talk to customers and kind of see what they did in a bake off. 
um, why they would have chosen Pronto Forums or somebody else. Um, you also look at market share, um, which is a pretty good indicator that you know customers are choosing this product over over another product. Um, but you, I mean, a lot of times in the early innings, which is where they are here, a lot of this is greenfield opportunity. So there's not not a lot of competition, and so it becomes a bit more of a race to scale because where where your competitive advantage really starts to kick in is when you're able to iterate your software platform with feedback from your clients from the use the from the actual users so the more user data you're you're using if you're reinvesting that back in the platform and building a better mousetrap um, the bigger you get the bigger your competitive advantage becomes and then and then you get into a you know a winner take all you know the top top two three players in the market um, own the market when you're looking at something like this, how do you think about valuation? Is it more, you, do you have your VC hat on when you're looking at something like this or how, how do you think about it? Yeah, there's there's two aspects. I mean, there's we wear our VC hat and that what that really allows us to do is conceptualize what the bull case scenario is. Like where, where could this company be in five years if they execute how they think they're going to or we think they're going to? Um, and then the other nice thing we can do is, and what was great is we saw, we saw one of their competitors taken out by private equity. It's just do a private market value check. And, you know, here's a company, I mean, Pronto Forms today is trading at a, a lower multiple than what one of their, their, their competitors was acquired for, uh, about two years ago now. So having that, having that, uh, that market data point on, you know, what private market value is, but then also understanding, you know, from a cash flow perspective, what the business is worth. Um, and then having that bull case scenario built into where we think the company could go, it, it all frames uh, how we value the business today. Uh, let's talk about another holding. Uh, I've had Andrew Wilkinson on the show before. Uh, WeCommerce. What's the opportunity in WeCommerce? Yeah, WeCommerce is one of the largest holdings in our, our small cap fund. It, uh, you know, it's 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 a software firm which is buying companies that help support the, the Shopify ecosystem. And so, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Shopify. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a wonderful e-commerce platform for retailers, physical retailers that want to go into the, into the online space. Um, but it's also, I mean, I kind of look at the, the way the world works and uh, I kind of reflect on Michael Porter and he says, you know, if you want to have a long-term sustainable competitive advantage, you either need to be a low-cost pro uh, provider or you need to provide a differentiated service. And kind of look at the game out there right now in terms of e-commerce. And you've got, you know, you got uh, Amazon there, you've got Walmart, you've got Costco, move, like pretty aggressive in the space. I mean, you're not going to win the low-cost game. Um, but there's a whole bunch of smaller producers on, on uh, differentiated providers, the creator economy that is going to be looking to monetize. And I mean, I think Shopify is going to become, or that has a great chance to become the platform for that. And right now is the market leader in, in addressing that. So, you know, I think there's a big tailwind behind Shopify. And what's really interesting is when, when you look for mental models, you look at how Salesforce built out their force.com platform. And Shopify is building a similar ecosystem where there's a lot of, you know, you know if, you're, if you're a retailer on Shopify's platform, you can buy someone who will help you with skins for your store, um, help you with your, your back end. Like there's all these little tools. 
Um, and Shopify supports this ecosystem, much like Salesforce uh, supported their ecosystem around the force.com platform. So we think it's just a wonderful long-term opportunity being, uh, being associated with the Shopify platform. And then you got Andrew and, uh, and Chris there. Um, I mean, I, I, I love listening to those guys because I mean, there's hardcore operators. I mean, they bootstrapped everything. Like they, they go nuts when people are spending a ton of money. Right. And I mean, when, when chairman and CEO are talking about stuff like that publicly, I mean, that just puts a big smile on my face. So they're very disciplined operators in the technology space. And then, you know, you got those two guys, they got busts of Buffett and Munger in their office, right? And so not only have they figured out how to operate technology companies profitably, um, they, I'm pretty sure they know how to acquire them. And they've made a couple really great acquisitions already. Um, so, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, a software business you want to be invested in, um, you know, you want people who can drive margins, you want organic growth. And if you can throw on some like great acquisitions on top of that, um, I mean, I, it's a company, I, it's a company I apparently really like today. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Andrews and I'm a huge fan of Shopify's as well. Um, but then the question, I guess, becomes uh, what, what are you prepared to pay for that opportunity? And e-commerce looks optically expensive to me, but perhaps you can help me understand it a little bit better. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it we, we participated in the IPO, so we had a, a decent position size. Um, and we, I mean, the majority of our position is bought between IPO price and, and up to $12. So that's kind of where we find it attractive. Um, it got, I mean, it got, it got very, people got very excited about it when it came out of the gates and it was, you know, it was well over $20. Um, but I think you really, it, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging to for people to value it until you uh, for about twelve months. Um, they they had a recent acquisition, which when we layer that in, you see the economics coming through. Um, that's when you know in twelve months, I think people are going to be saying, "Ah, oh, I wish I bought it a year ago." But you need you definitely need to be forward thinking on 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 the business, um, in particular the recent acquisition. Let's talk about your third position, uh, Sangoma. What, what is the opportunity there? Yeah, so uh, Sangoma is a unified communications provider. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of excitement in the space, uh, particularly in the US. Um, companies doing various aspects of it, like Ring Central and Trulio. And, uh, you know, Sangoma is here, it is a, a Canadian pub co. And, you know, this is one of those where'd the idea come from? I don't know. I've been following it since the mid 2000s. And uh, Bill Wignall, the CEO, came in there in the kind of early part of the 2010s and been watching him ever since. And when he, when, he came, when he went in there, it was a it was a one product company where the product was about to go end of life. Um, and he comes into my office and he's like, well, I got one product and $10 million in the bank, so I'm going to invest all that $10 million and uh, and build a great company <laughs> and i said well good for you <laughs> good luck <laughs> yeah and uh and i watched him and well son of a gun he did it and a couple of years later i was like well he's just doing everything he says he's going to do so we we uh we started we, we took a position in the company and we've you know recently made it a, a one of our larger holdings and 
So in the unified communication space, I mean, you can look through the Ring Central information. There's this massive transition going on from analog to digital telephony. So there's a whole bunch of players that are, are capitalizing on that opportunity. And so Sangoma's in that market. Um, everybody has, you know, you know, some off, all companies like kind of address that market in different ways, servicing different client bases, um, different, different technology stacks and go-to-market strategies. Um, you know, they've, they've just been very successful in the small to medium business uh, market because they offer a true end-to-end -end solution. So small business can just can deal with Sangoma. Um, and when we, when we look at what, how they've built the business out, I mean, it was a hardware business. I think software revenue is now up to 66% of the revenue. Um, and like from a valuation perspective, uh, trades at about a 40, 50% discount to what us peers trade at. And I mean, pursuing a U.S. listing right now, um, which, you know, maybe we get a re-rate on the stock, but I think kind of to my earlier point when I was talking about the, the appetite in Canadian markets compared to U.S. markets, um, you know, here's the company which, because it's, you know, in Canada, not, not as well known, known or followed in the U.S., it trades at a discount to what their U.S. peers are trading at. It's absolutely fascinating, Dave. Um, we're sort of coming up on time. If uh, folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I'm on Twitter, um, at Pender Dave. And our website, we've uh, penderfund.com. And uh, we, have, we podcast every now and again, too. We've had some wonderful guests over the years. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And me. First and foremost, Toby. <laughs> um, and what's the ticker of your of your closed end fund? Uh, Pender Tom Frank PTF on the PTF. venture exchange. Uh, Dave Barr, Pender Capital Management. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs>